1811, a series of brutal murders on the Ratcliffe Highway in the east end of London shook the locals to the very core with their unrivaled brutality and seemingly random everyday targets. The murders exposed a fear in the city that had been bubbling away beneath the surface for several years and made some of the first inroads into the long debate over the reform of the way the police operated throughout the country. For a long time, considered as the crime of the century and unparalleled in the fear and panic it provoked amongst the population of the city, it was only overshadowed by a group of five murders in Whitechapel during the summer and autumn of 1888, attributed to the elusive and infamous Jack the Ripper. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark History Season 7, Episode 21. 21. Good Lord, we're reaching the end of the year. It's definitely starting to feel that way. I took my dog out for a walk yesterday and it was absolutely freezing, which means that winter is almost here. The nights are drawing in and it's definitely time to start talking about ghosts and such. Although we've done quite a few episodes on ghosts. So today we're going to do one about murders. And this is... Of all, like, seven series now of Dark Histories, you know, I've, I've, I've read a lot. I've read a lot of weird stuff. Um, but this one, the finale of this one. So, yeah, I hope you enjoy it. Let's get into it straight away. This is uh, The Ratcliffe Highway Murders of 1811. Running east from Tower Hill and hugging the Thames River as it winds through London... The Ratcliffe Highway was one of the main arteries flowing in and out of the capital, dating back over 1,500 years. With the building of the London docks in Wapping in the early years of the 19th century, the area surrounding the highway quickly evolved from a grimy, winding slum into a thriving hamlet, supporting the bustling maritime industry for one of the busiest ports in the world. The secure dock area was built in part as a direct response to the sheer volume of thievery that thrived in the various quays and wharfs dotted along the river, a problem that had previously seen the establishment of the Thames River Police in 1798 as the first ever specialist police force in Britain. The resulting complex, completed in 1805, transformed the landscape as an entire community sprang up around its high walls. Able to house over 500 ships and storing over 200,000 tonnes of goods such as brandy, rum, wine, rice, fruit, sugar, coffee, nuts, wool and tobacco, all of which sailed into the city from around the East and West Indies, the 90-acre site brought the commerce of the British Empire into the new century. The new urban suburb that grew around it, affectionately known as Sailor Town to the locals, housed a variety of seafaring men, as well as the industries that supported their transient lives. Pubs, lodging houses, tailors, grocers, bakers, craftsmen and brothels all settled their stores looking to take advantage of the cultural melange that took up the residents along the highway, from impoverished sailors to entrepreneurial social climbers that spanned as many nationalities as could find their way to the city. Despite the vast amount of wealth that flowed into the city via the ships, the vast majority of the people responsible for working their cargo were of the poorest classes, and quickly Ratcliffe gained a reputation for violence, crime and debauchery. In what was a fairly typical description of the area, author Watts Phillips wrote of Ratcliffe as the headquarters of unbridled vice and drunken violence of all that is dirty, disorderly and debased. Splash, dash, down comes the rain, 
but it must fall a deluge indeed to wash away even a portion of the filth to be found in this detestable place. Like a drab, it lies side by side with the river, who holds it in its foul embrace, kissing its rottenness with slimy lips and receiving into its broad bosom a portion of the corruption that it contains. As ships docked, sailors who had spent months at sea, tightly disciplined and harshly treated, were given free rein and a pocket full of silver and confronted with all the vice they might have dreamed of while stranded out on the vast lonely oceans. Drunken brawls were merely a lived-in feature of the dark, oil-lamp-lit streets that twisted off the highway, weaving out into the cramped lodging houses that packed in a volatile population. Yet for the landlords and shopkeepers, the area offered a unique opportunity to capitalise on a newly thriving up-and-coming economy, if one was willing to wade into the mire at least. 24-year-old Timothy Marr was an ex-sailor who, like many others, had decided to give the Ratcliffe Highway a go at business. Setting up shop right opposite the London docks, he was comfortable enough surrounded by the people he had spent the majority of his life with. Rather than the textiles he sold, however, it was for something far more disturbing that his name would become famous when the cold winter of 1811 fell upon Sailor Town. Born in 1787, Timothy Marr set up shop on the Ratcliffe Highway in April of 1811. He served aboard the East Indiaman, the Dover Castle, as the personal servant to Captain George Richardson, where he sailed to St Helena, Madras and Bengal under the flag of the East India Company, before being signed off with the pocket full of cash and London at his feet after four years' service in 1808. Shortly after, he married his wife Celia, and the two settled down in their new premises on 29 Ratcliffe Highway, where Timothy opened a small textile shop and linen drapery. Far from the glamour of the city, Mars shop was right on the border of Wapping and Shadwell, and in earlier days was prime location for little else other than hanged pirates, whose corpses were left to rot as a warning to others. Now, in 1811, the highway was transformed, and the recently constructed London docks, situated right opposite the shop, dominated the area though the reputation of the neighbourhood and the rowdy seafaring population kept the rents low for someone starting a new business. Mars' shop was busy enough, and hours were long, but the security was considerably better than his life on the sea, and in August that year, the Mars welcomed the birth of their first son, Timothy Jr. By December of 1811, Timothy had employed a carpenter to work on the shop and install wooden bay windows painted green and expanding the front out of the brick terrace. Inside, the ground floor catered to the public, with a short hallway out back leading to stairs down to the kitchen in the basement and to the bedrooms on the first floor. The second floor acted as storage for the Mars stock of silk, furs and textiles. A rear window in the hallway looked out over a communal backyard area that backed out into the docks. Saturday, the 7th of December, had been another busy weekend in the shop, and it wasn't until gone eleven at night that Timothy was wrapping up for the day with his young assistant James Gowan. Celia Marr was downstairs in the kitchen with Timothy Jr. And finally, at ten to midnight, with only the last task of closing up the shutters for the night, Timothy sent out his domestic servant, Margaret Jewell, to pay the baker's bill and fetch some oysters for supper. Despite the late hour, Saturdays were the busiest day on the highway. It wasn't unusual for shops to open from 8am and remain open until midnight. Margaret walked off through the dimly lit streets, heading out first for the oyster stall, 
but finding it already closed up for the night, she returned to the Mars and passed straight by, seeing Timothy and James still inside, and made her way to the baker's. Sadly, Margaret's arrival at the baker's just after midnight left her equally disappointed, as it too had already closed, and so, empty-handed, she made her way back to the Mars to break the bad news, stopping by a few more oyster places on the way, just in the hopes of finding one open. By the time that she arrived back at the shop, it was ten past midnight, and she found it all closed up for the night, the door locked, lights out, and the shutters drawn. Given the time, this wasn't such an unusual situation, and so she gave the bell a ring and stepped back onto the pavement, waiting for an answer. The highway was quiet by now, and the only other person out was the night watchman who passed by on the other side of the street. Watching him pass, Margaret began to feel the cold and gave the bell a second tug. Finally, she heard footsteps coming from inside the shop and let out a sigh of relief. But then, instead of hearing Timothy Marr unlocking the front door, the shop fell back into an awkward silence. Frustrated, she rang the bell several times more and gave the door a small kick for good measure. As she did so, a drunk walked by and shouted at her. Beginning to feel panicked now, Margaret looked around for the return of the night watchman. It was a cold and uncomfortable 30 minutes before he did make his way back around, and upon seeing Margaret still outside and thinking her a vagrant, he stepped over the road to ask her to move on. Margaret explained the situation, and the watchman, knowing the Mars well, joined in the effort to rouse them from their sleep, ringing the bell and thumping hard on the door. All the noise began alerting the neighbours, and before long, John Murray, a pawnbroker from the shop next door, stepped out into the street to find out what was going on, just as the watchman was bending over and calling through the keyhole. Murray said that a little earlier, he had heard a strange thumping coming from inside Mars Place, along with a short, sharp cry, but he'd just assumed it was the Mars quarrelling, or Timothy reprimanding his assistant, and he did his best just to ignore it. Under the circumstances now, however, it suddenly took on a more sinister light. Whilst Margaret and the watchman stayed out front, Murray agreed to go back through his own shop and into the rear yard and see if he could alert the Mars from the back entrance instead. Scaling a small fence, he landed in the Mars' backyard and made his way to the back door, knocked and called out several times. Waiting in the dark, the silence rang heavy, but inside the shop, Murray could just about make out the small light of a candle. Making his way back out to the front of the street, he found Margaret and the watchman still banging on the door and explained what he had seen, telling them that he'd tried to force entry through the back door. Within a minute, he was back in the Mars' backyard and approaching the door once again. Placing his hand on the door, he gave it a light shove and found it unlocked. Stepping gingerly into the dark hallway, he looked around and saw that the small light that he had seen had been from a candle up on the first floor landing. So quietly, he made his way up the stairs and picked it up noticing that the bedroom door was closed. Not wanting to cause a shock to the Mars, Murray called out to Timothy, but gained no reply. And so he turned and made his way back down to the ground floor hallway, turning into the main shop area where he could hear the watchman on the street banging at the door. He wasn't two steps into the room when the low light of the candle cast across the floor by his feet, unearthing a disturbing sight. James Gowan, the young assistant, was lying on the floor in a puddle of blood and gore his head broken beyond recognition. Dark stains spattered up the walls and onto the ceiling, and stumbling forwards towards the door, Murray saw Celia too, lying down, her head equally shattered. In shock, he pulled the front door open and fell out into the street, crying out, Murder! Murder! Come see what murder is here! By now, 
The watchman's repeated knocking had caused a small crowd to gather outside the Mars shop, and several of the crowd pushed past Murray to get in and see the scene for themselves. Within moments, the voices erupted into shouting as the body of Timothy Marr was discovered face down on the ground behind the counter at the rear of the shop. The night had been a gruesome shock for everyone, but it was about to get considerably worse when one of the onlookers called up from the kitchen in the basement where he had found Marr's 14-week-old baby, Timothy Jr., battered with his throat cut almost through. In all the commotion, the watchman's rattle, used to alert others to danger, had managed to draw an even larger crowd, including the presence of a police officer, Charles Horton, who had been on duty at Wapping. As the first official on the scene, he searched the house, but all he could really find that seemed unusual, well, aside from the bodies, was a clean carpenter's ripping chisel on the shop counter. At first glance, nothing appeared to have been stolen. There was a good sum of money still in the shop's till, along with a five-pound note in Timothy Mark's pocket. Upstairs, he found the bedroom quiet, the bed undisturbed, but leaning up against a chair, an iron carpenter's maul rested in a small pool of blood, stained and matted with hair, one side of the head broken clean off. A drawer in the room, left unopened, was found to contain a small tin box with £152 in cash inside. As he stood questioning the motive, a call from downstairs alerted Horton to the hallway where one of the onlookers had found blood smeared on the ground in the shape and pattern of what appeared to be two sets of footprints that led out of the back door and over the rear fence. With all the excitement buzzing in the crowd, rumours began to fly immediately, and one witness said that he'd seen a gang of around 10 to 12 men flooding out of an empty house and sprint off down nearby Gravel Lane just after the first alarm from the watchman's rattle. The officials, however, had no idea what seemed to have happened, with robbery looking to be out of the picture. Officer Horton took the broken and bloody maul to the Thames River Police Headquarters, where he found that three Greek sailors had been arrested and brought into custody already. Seen loitering nearby Mars's store, and with one of the men having a small amount of blood spatter on his trousers, the men were quickly discharged when alibi was supplied, and it became apparent they had absolutely nothing to do with the murders. The Thames River Police were ordinarily concerned with crimes that took place on the river and inside the docks, but John Harriet, the ex-mariner in charge of the operation, had taken it upon himself to get involved in the case, given the proximity of the Mars's store to the docks. London in 1811 was a woefully under-policed city, with the Mars murders taking place a full 18 years before any true organised city-wide police force was operating, and as such... The investigation of the Mars murders was split up between the magistrates and officials of the Shadwell and surrounding parishes who employed part-time constables and night watchmen on a rotating assignment basis with little to no central organisation. In fact, rather than neighbouring parishes cooperating with one another, they far more frequently found themselves competing over petty rivalries, reward money and corrupt agendas. That afternoon, the church wardens and trustees of the parish of St George's of the East, based in the church round the corner from the Mars's store, got together and rustled up a reward for information on the murders, printing out a poster that would be pinned up on all the church and pub doors throughout the parish. £50 reward. Horrid murder. Whereas the dwelling house of Mr Timothy Marr, 29 Ratcliffe Highway, Mans Mercer, was entered this morning between the hours of 12 and 2 o'clock by some persons unknown, when the said Mr. Marr, Mrs. Celia Marr, his wife, Timothy, their infant child in the cradle, and James Biggs, a servant lad, were all of them most inhumanely and barbarously murdered. Rushed as it was, it is perhaps somewhat understandable how they managed to get James Gowan's name completely wrong, 
Offering a reward was a crude approach to policing, but it was, in the early 1800s, often the full extent of many investigations for a lot of the parishes. Harriet and his river police, however, were looking into the mall that was now in their possession, in the hope that some sort of maker's mark may allow it to be traced to a buyer. At the same time, they carried out interviews with dozens of witnesses, which turned up several new descriptions of men seen around the shop at the time of the murders, including a tall, lusty man in a light-coloured sort of flushing coat, a second man wearing a blue jacket, the sleeves of which were much torn, and a small-rimmed hat. There was a third man too, though no description of him was forthcoming. Still, the idea that the murders had been carried out by a gang of men did fit nicely with Harriet's private theory that there were at least two guilty men. On Monday morning, the first thing he ordered was the printing of his own poster offering a reward for £20. It was also on Monday morning that the newspapers picked up the story. Horrid and unparalleled murders, an afflicting murder of four persons was perpetrated in the dwelling house of Mr Timothy Marr, Silk Mercer, 29 Ratcliffe Highway, yesterday morning between the hours of 12 and 1 o'clock by ruffians who unfortunately have not yet been traced. The story did little more than detail the testimonies of the primary witnesses so far questioned by the officials, though it did mention the arrest of five Portuguese sailors, though no basis as to why they were arrested was given. Over the following days, this would become to represent something of a theme, as foreign sailors were arrested with little reason other than the fact that they were foreign and happened to be in the Shadwell area. Most were released quickly enough, though a few unlucky ones did wind up being remanded in jail for several days. The newspaper report had hit the nail on the head with its headline, however. The Mars murders were certainly unparalleled. In the early 1800s, the murder rate in London was shockingly low, given its population. Whilst that can, to some extent, be attributed to the lack of proper policing, forensics and corruption obscuring the records, it was nevertheless true that a brutal murder like, like that of the Marr family was comparatively rare and certainly enough to cause a degree of panic and moral outrage throughout the streets of the capital. The inquest was carried out the next day on Tuesday the 10th of December in the Jolly Sailor pub that sat opposite the Mars shop on Ratcliffe Highway. At 2pm, the jury filtered over to the textile shop to view the scene and the bodies, by now a regular tourist attraction, before they shuffled back to the pub to hear from the witnesses involved. If the readers of the newspapers had been shocked by the report of the murders on Monday, it was nothing to the panic the testimony of Walter Salter, the surgeon who had examined the bodies, would conjure. Timothy Marr, the younger, had the left external artery of the neck entirely divided. From the left side of the mouth, across the artery, the wound was at least three inches long, and there were several marks of violence on the left side of the face. Celia Marr, the wife, had the left side of the cranium fractured, the temple bone totally destroyed, and a wound about the articulation of the jaw extending two inches to her left ear, and another at the back of the same ear. Timothy Marr, the elder, had his nose broken, the occipital bone was fractured, and the mark of a violent blow was over the right eye. James Gowan, the apprentice boy, had several contusions of the forehead and nose, the occipital bone was shattered dreadfully, and the brains were partly protruding and partly scattered about. Margaret Jewell, the servant girl, John Murray, the neighbour, and George Olney, the night watchman who had assisted Margaret outside the shop, all gave their testimonies, laying out the timeline of the discovery of the bodies, before the jury returned the verdict of willful murder against some person or persons unknown. Thanks to the newspaper stories, the next day, the Ratcliffe Highway found itself crammed full with crowds coming to the East End to see the scene of the horrid crimes for themselves. 
Rumours flew about through the local pubs, who took a roaring trade. But naturally, none had any basis in reality whatsoever, and even if they did, they would have been washed along in the constant stream of nonsense suspicion that fueled the gossip that rippled through the neighbourhood. It was the reaction of a community that felt helpless and scared. The senseless cruelty of the murders was confusing, and the fact that the targets had been normal, everyday people getting on with work left people feeling vulnerable, especially with so little progress being reported from the policing side of things. Not that the investigation was at a complete standstill. On Wednesday, the carpenter, Mr Pugh, who Timothy Marr had employed to renovate his shop window, was arrested and taken into custody, though in truth it was simply due to the presence of the ripping chisel on the counter, which Pugh told the police he had mislaid whilst working at the shop. He had inquired about it with Marr, who said he had been unable to find it, though it must have been discovered at some point, as there it was on the counter on Saturday night. Eventually, the carpenter's alibi was accepted, completely at face value, due to the flow of good character testimonies that came in to back up the craftsman. A second man was arrested on the same day after he'd overheard boasting about knowing the killers whilst drinking in one of the local pubs. Though after being questioned by the magistrates, it became quite apparent that the man was just another drunk gossip and his story based in complete nonsense. With little progress being made and bowing to the pressure from the press and the public, the Home Office stepped into the investigation in a fairly unprecedented move by offering a reward of £100 in return for information on the murderers, which they upped again two days later to £500, with the rewards together now totalling well over £600. This was a small fortune that would have taken a skilled craftsman over a decade to earn at the time. Naturally, such an illustrious reward brought about dozens of chances and more arrests were made of people being named that were unlucky enough to have been somehow insinuated in the murders by any number of baseless rumours. Two Quaker men reported seeing a pile of bloody clothing in Ratcliffe Highway on Sunday morning, just hours after the attack, and the police requested any further info, or anyone who may have collected the clothing, to present them to the magistrate's office, but nothing more came of it. Meanwhile, Mars's funeral was held, and the whole family were buried in the churchyard of St George's in the East, just round the corner from their home, in front of a large crowd that lined the streets along the procession. Later, a headstone was added to the site with a poem to record the event. Stop, mortal, stop, as you pass by, and view the grave wherein doth lie a father, mother, and a son, whose earthly course was shortly run. For lo, all in one fatal hour, overcame were they with ruthless power, and murdered in a cruel state, yea, far too horrid to relate. They spared not one to tell the tale, one for the other could not wail, the other's fate in anguish sighed, loving they lived, together they died. Reflect, O reader, over their fate, and turn from sin before too late. Life is uncertain in this world, oft in a moment we are hurled to endless bliss or endless pain, so let not sin within you reign. For such a busy week, the investigation had not managed to get very far. A man named Thomas Knight had been arrested in Reading and brought to the Shadwell magistrates after he had been seen washing his clothes late on the night of the murder, with some suspicion that he had disappeared on the day after the murders, and that the stains he had been washing had looked like blood. Upon his arrival in front of the officials, he gave a solid alibi and assured the police that he had not tried to run away from London after the murders at all, rather he had gone to collect his family and help them to move to London, a journey which he had planned for some time. The magistrates kept him in custody after questioning, but with little plan for him. Whilst one lead seemed to be closing, however, a new lead opened. After reports came in of two suspicious-looking men 
who had approached a man named George Judd, a member of the Coldstream Guards, one evening whilst he was in Piccadilly. One of the men had been five foot five with a scar on his right cheek, whilst the other was considerably taller, matching the description of the men seen running down Ratcliffe Highway shortly after the murders. One of the men approached Judd and asked him if he knew the bus timetables to Plymouth, whilst the other man appeared to hang back into the shadows. When Judd had replied that he couldn't help them, the man asked him to go and inquire at the bus station for him, offering to buy him a drink in return. Not one to turn down a free beer, Judd carried out the request, and the man paid him cash for the price of a pint of beer before slinking off with his strange partner. As they walked away, however, Judd noticed one of them drop a small piece of paper, which he picked up, and found it to be a poorly written note. After I have settled my affairs here, my dear friends, proceed home by Monday morning, as I hear the rumour is great of our transaction. To leave England immediately is the best way. The deed is greatly done. Don't fault to come. If you will, meet me at our rendezvous. Your sworn friend, M.M. Mahoney. Whilst it did seem the men were up to something likely on the wrong side of the law, the lead quickly evaporated to nothing, and the suspicious men were never seen nor heard from again. On Wednesday, 18th of December, Another drunk was arrested, this time for mouthing off in a pub that he had heard that Mar's brother had employed six or seven men to kill his brother after they had had a falling out. This story was not like the other rumours, he loudly protested. He could prove this one, as he knew one of the men involved who had told him all about the killings after feeling a great deal of remorse. The man was promptly arrested, but once he sobered up, he admitted to knowing nothing of the story and confessed that, after suffering a head injury, he had been prone to saying outlandish claims, which he would forget the very next day. The drink, of course, probably helped matters along too. As it happened, the rumours that the Mars brothers had fallen out was one that had been much repeated, and so the magistrates pulled in Timothy's brother all the same, questioned him heavily for 48 hours, before they confirmed that he had a rock-solid alibi, putting an end to any truth that might have laid in the assassination rumours. Finally, after a string of vague descriptions, outlandish rumours and random arrests, a breakthrough was discovered the next day, when one of Harriet's men from the Thames River Police took it upon himself to investigate the mall, a full twelve days after the murders. Scrubbing off some of the blood from the instrument's head, he found a small mark stamped into it that looked like the initials JP. The very next day, Harriet issued another new poster describing the tool. Thames Police Office Whopping whereas it is most particularly necessary that any person who may possess any knowledge of the mall with which the late barbarous murder in Ratcliffe Highway appears to have been committed should come forward and make the same known. The magistrates have caused the same to be again described and do most solemnly and urgently require that every person who may be enabled to give even the slightest information respecting it do immediately acquaint the magistrates therewith. The mall may be seen by any such person on application to this office. Description the handle of the maul is 23 inches long. The head, from the face to the extremity, of the pin end is 8 inches and a half. It has a floor on the face, and the pin end has been broken off in flakes. It is marked faintly with the letters JP in dots on the crown near the face, and appears to have been marked with a coppering punch. This was a significant new detail, and one that all the officials across the city hoped might glean some sort of solid lead to follow that might allow them to placate the press and the public. Unfortunately, the same night that the initials were found, a second new horror was primed to take place, throwing the public into a further panic. A little way down the Ratcliffe Highway from the Mars' store, New Gravel Lane sprung off to one side, 
parallel to the London docks, and halfway down the lane sat the King's Arms pub. The Williamsons had been the landlords for over 15 years and were well known in the area, living on the premises with their 14-year-old granddaughter, Kitty Stilwell, their servant, Bridget Harrington, and young lodger, John Turner, who had been renting a room above the tavern for the past eight months. The pub itself was a three-storey terrace building, with Mr and Mrs Williamson sleeping on the first floor and the servant and lodger taking bedrooms on the top floor. Behind the pub, an open yard area backed onto a flat waste ground owned by the London Docks Company. The night of Thursday, 19th December, had been another quiet one for the Ratcliffe Highway. Since the murders of the Mars, the streets had quickly fallen quiet after dark, a fact that had made the dark alleyways no less intimidating to the watchmen who patrolled from 9pm till sunrise. At 10.50pm, Constable Anderson visited the pub for a late-night beer. He lived two doors down from the King's Arms and knew the Williamsons well. As it turned out, Mr Williamson was glad to see the officer, as he had been concerned after he had caught a man in a brown coat listening in at his door, and he asked Anderson that if he saw the man in the streets, he might want to take him in. After all, you couldn't be too careful these days. Anderson left the pub shortly after, but returned 20 minutes later, hoping to pick up another beer, despite the pub closing promptly at 11 every night. Since the Williamsons and Anderson were on good terms, he knew they would be happy to oblige him. Stepping out of his house, however, he found a street far from quiet. A large crowd had gathered outside the pub, and looking up, he noticed the figure of a man, half-dressed, hanging from a string of bedclothes out of the top window, screaming at the top of his lungs. As Anderson approached, he realised it was the lodger, John Turner, and that the screams were that of murder. Rushing to the building, he saw the crowds frantically trying to break in the front door, whilst another group worked on the cellar door, heaving at it with their hands, trying to pry it up from the pavement. The cellar door gave way first, popping open with a crunch, and as the dim light from the oil lamps from the street cast into the basement, a horrifying sight greeted the crowds. Mr Williamson was lying on the floor of the cellar on his back, his head smashed in and his throat cut. On the ground next to him, his hand lay in a pool of blood, badly slashed and severed. As the crowd surged into the pub to search the rest of the rooms, the body of Mrs Williamson was quickly found. Like her husband, she was lying on the floor of the taproom, her throat cut and her head battered. Bridget Harrington lay nearby, equally beaten. As men bustled around on the ground floor, others swept the rooms upstairs, returning moments later with a bleary-eyed Kitty Stilwell who had, somewhat miraculously, managed to sleep through all of the commotion of the savage attack and emerge unscathed. In all the chaos, one of the onlookers had run off to inform the Shadwell officers and soon, two night watchmen were on the scene who had been patrolling the area that night. Unfortunately, both had been eating supper in another pub whilst the murders had taken place. Like before, bloody prints were found on the scene, with smears all over the windowsill that led out to the wasteland out back, and below the window, a footprint had sunk deep into the clay ground. In a moment of impressive forensic deduction, a local butcher, who had helped break the door down, examined the bodies and concluded that the attacker was left-handed, though future Kenny noticed. Once again, it looked like no robbery had taken place. The Williamsons had a fair amount of loose cash on the premises, and there was cash in the till, though John Williamson's watch did appear to be missing. By now, the streets outside the pub had burst into a flurry of activity, as volunteers combed the area looking for clues, and the local church wardens once again gathered, inspected the scene and knocked together another poster, advertising a £100 reward for information, along with the description of Williamson's watch, which had been relatively unique 
having been engraved with the name James Catchpole. It didn't take long for the arrests to start flowing once more, which was fortunate, as the public were growing restless and angry mobs were beginning to appear outside the magistrate's offices, demanding work to be done on catching the attackers. Shadwell brought in an Irishman named Sylvester Driscoll after he had been caught with a large collection of alcohol, including over a gallon of brandy. When they turned over his room, they also found a pair of white trousers with a small splash of blood on the hem. During questioning, he explained that the alcohol was just simply the normal amount that he bought and drank every year over the Christmas holidays, and that the stains were just paint. Meanwhile, witnesses were giving descriptions of two men that had been seen running towards Ratcliffe Highway after the murders. One had been shorter than the other, and appeared to have a lame leg. One witness heard him turn to the taller man and shout, Come along, Mahoney, come along. Though he wasn't entirely convinced by his own recollection, and thought that the name could also have been something like Huey. Once again, the government waded in with the Home Office offering a second £500 reward, along with a free pardon to any accomplices who might want to turn on the murderers for their stake in these riches. With all the money now involved, and with the murders being as just as savage and seemingly random as before, rumours continued to fly, with many beginning to border on the ridiculous as the mobs grew dangerously close to rioting in the streets. On Saturday afternoon, the inquest took place in the Black Horse pub, which sat opposite the King's Arms on New Gravel Lane. The opening salvo from the coroner was not shy, with him calling the murders a disgrace to the country and almost a reproach to civilization, and conceding that the police were insufficient to deal with the investigation. At the same time, he stoked the fires by voicing the thoughts of an angry public, saying they felt unsafe in their beds and that their homes no longer were their castles. He called on the government to enlist the military to patrol the streets. The first witness was not there to call the fires, as John Turner gave a harrowing deposition of his experiences upstairs in the King's Arms during the attack. I went from my brother's to Mr Williamson's on Thursday evening last, about 20 minutes before 11 o'clock, as near as I can say. When I went in, Mrs Williamson was standing at the front door. She followed me. Mr Williamson was sitting in the middle of the room in his great chair. The servant was in the back room. I saw no other person in the house but those three. Mr Williamson told me to sit down. I stood by the fire and a little man came in, whose name I understand to be Samuel Phillips. He came in according to his usual custom for a pint of beer and told Mr Williamson that there was a stout man with a very large coat on peeping in at the inner glass door in the passage. Mr Williamson, catching up on the candlestick, said, I'll see what he wants. He went out with the candle in his hand and returned saying that he could not see him, but if he did see him, he would send him where he ought or would not like to go. Phillips went out with his beer, and Mr Anderson came in directly afterwards. He did not stay above two or three minutes. Shortly afterwards, the servant raked out the fire, and I went to bed, at which time Mrs Williamson followed me upstairs to her own room with a watch and silver punch ladle. This was the last time I saw either of them living. I heard Mrs Williamson lock the bedroom door and go downstairs again. There was no fastening to my room door. I went to bed and had not been there above five minutes before I heard the front door being banged to, very hard. Immediately afterwards, I heard the servant exclaim, We are all murdered, or shall be murdered, two or three times. I cannot exactly say which of these expressions she made use of. I had not been asleep. I heard the sound of two or three blows, but with what weapon, I cannot say. Shortly afterwards, I heard Mr Williamson cry out, I'm a dead man. I was in bed still, 
About two minutes afterwards, I got out of bed and listened at the door but could hear nothing. I went down to the first floor and from below I heard the sound of three heavy sighs. I heard some person walk across the middle of the room on the ground floor very lightly. I was then halfway down the last pair of stairs and naked. I went to the bottom of the stairs and the door stood a little on the jar. I passed through the opening and by the light of a candle which was burning in the room, I saw a man, apparently near six feet high, in a large rough flushing coat of a dark colour which came down to his heels. He was standing with his back towards me, apparently leaning over some person, as if in the act of rifling their pockets. As I heard some silver rattle and saw him rise and open his coat with his left hand and put his right hand onto his breast, as if to put something in his pocket. I did not see his face and only saw that one person. I was fearful and went upstairs as quick but as softly as I could. I thought of first getting under the bed but was fearful I should be found. I then took the two sheets, tied them together, tied them to the bedpost, opened the window and lowered myself down by the sheets. The watchman was going by. I told him there was murder in the house and he assisted me in getting down. I had nothing on but my nightcap, my shirt and a jersey waistcoat. The watchman sprang his rattle. The final evidence of the day was given once more by the sergeant Walter Salter, who closed the whole disturbing day with quite a bang. John Williamson has a wound extending from the left ear to within two inches of the right, penetrating through the trachea or windpipe, down to the vertebrae of the neck, and the tibia or large bone of the left leg fractured a little above the ankle, apparently from a fall, as if downstairs, because had it been done by any other means, I think there must have been a laceration of the integuments, no marks of violence upon any other parts. Elizabeth Williamson, the right temple and parietal, dreadfully fractured, apparently from a large poker or some such instrument, comprehending nearly the whole or the right side of the head, the throat cut from ear to ear, through the windpipe, etc., no marks of violence upon any other part. Anna Bridget Harrington, the woman servant, the right parietal bone laid open about four inches in length and two inches in width, with the bones exposed and the throat cut about four inches in length through the windpipe. No other marks of violence appear. I conceive their throats to have been cut with a razor as none but a sharp instrument could have cut so deep without tearing the parts, which is not the case in this instance, their throats being cut by one incision. On each of their bodies there is sufficient cause of death appearing. It was 7pm by the time he had concluded the medical summary, with the inquest concluding a verdict of Willful murder against some person or persons unknown, just as before, and as was to be expected. The Williamson's funeral took place the following day, and once more the streets filled with quiet crowds. The public feeling now of abject fear and near hysteria. Fortunately, the news was about to change, and not a moment too soon for the officials, who were beginning to get desperate. It all started with the tip-off on Monday morning, that alerted the Shadwell police to a man lodging at the Pear Tree Inn, some way south of Ratcliffe Highway and New Gravel Lane, in nearby Wapping. At 27 years old, John Williams had always been considered a fine enough young man. An Irish seaman, he had always lodged at the Pear Tree when on shore, and despite his position as a sailor, appeared to most to be educated, well-cultured and dressed pretty well. This was a fact that had created rumours about his old life across the Irish Sea, though the truth was that no one really knew anything about him. He had sandy hair, stood at around 5 foot 9 inches tall, and crucially, had something of a lame leg. He had regularly drunk at the Williamson's pub, and on the night of the murders, he had returned to his bedroom at the Pear Tree, which he shared with two other lodgers, well gone midnight. 
The officials didn't really have anything else on him, but trusting the tip-off, Williams was arrested and brought before the magistrates, where it was discovered that he had 14 shillings in silver in his pockets, along with a £1 note and two pawn tickets, which he said were for pairs of shoes that he had pawned recently. During questioning, he admitted that he had visited the King's Arms frequently, and even having been there on the night of the murder. However, he denied having anything to do with the attacks themselves, and said that he had left the pub well before midnight in order to visit a surgeon to discuss an operation to repair his lame leg. The reason he got back to the pear tree so late, he said, was the fact that the surgeon had suggested a heavy fee for his treatment, and so Williams had visited a second doctor in order to seek an alternative, cheaper treatment. On his way home, he had then met a female acquaintance, and the two had decided to visit a few pubs together before he headed back home. It all seemed rather innocuous, but he was deemed suspicious enough to keep him in custody, and he was removed to a cell in the Coldbath Fields prison in Clerkenwell. William's incarceration really was the start of a flurry of arrests, as the call of the healthy reward appeared to continue to fail, and the officials became increasingly desperate. And then, on Christmas Eve, finally, the mall used in the murder of the Mars was identified, and with the great luck for the investigation, it appeared to originate from the pear tree. Mr Vermelo, who was currently in jail at Newgate serving time for unpaid debts and the owner of the pear tree, had identified them all, saying that it had belonged to an old German lodger who had stayed at the inn named John Peterson. When he had last left the sea, Peterson had left his tool chest in the care of the landlord and Mr Vermelo was now convinced that the mall had come from that very chest and he even suggested that he may have used it himself to chop wood, which is how the tip had broken off. This was bad news for John Williams who quickly became the number one suspect. The next evening, he was brought once more to the Shadwell Police Office for an advanced interrogation in front of the magistrates. John Turner was asked to identify Williams in order to see if he was the man that he had seen on the night of the attack, though all he could really say with certainty was that he had seen Williams drinking in the King's Arms before, but he could not be so sure that he was the man he had seen on the night of the murders. A washerwoman named Mary Rice was also called, who said that she had been washing Williams's clothing for over three years and told the magistrates that she had seen a shirt of his with a small blood stain on the collar, like the mark of two fingers, as well as a few small spots of blood on the sleeves and a tear in the chest. She had washed that shirt and kept it to one side with plans to mend the tear before returning it. She had presumed the stains and the tear had come from a quarrel and not given it much thought until his arrest. In his defence... William said that he had had an altercation with a group of Irish sailors that he had played a game of cards with that had turned sour. One of the group had apparently grabbed his collar, torn the shirt and punched him in the mouth, which he said had caused the blood. Mrs Vermelo, the landlady of the pear tree, spoke next, confirming with the magistrates that her husband was currently serving time for owing a debt of £20. She also confirmed that the description of the mall sounded like it had originated from the chest of tools that her husband had been keeping for the German lodger, and that recently a mall had gone missing that her husband had sometimes used to chop wood. Unfortunately for the magistrates, she also confirmed that the chest had not been locked, and therefore any of the tools inside had been freely available to any visitor of the inn who may have decided to open it up and take a look inside. Worse, she struggled to identify the mall itself, and through tears, so shocked by having the weapon thrust in front of her, she only said that she could not say if it was the mall or not that came from the tool chest. She also said that John Williams had always been an honest lodger as far as she had known him. Mrs Rice then chipped in once more, stating that her young son had often played with a hammer in the street 
so the magistrates called him to be questioned too. The 11-year-old boy identified the hammer as the one he had found in the street and played with before, though he also confirmed that he hadn't seen it in over a month. With that, the questioning ended for the day. The following day was Christmas Day, though for the newspapers it was business as usual, and they spent a great amount of words calling out the inadequacy in the current city police force. The public, too, seemed to have had enough, and that evening a meeting was held for Shadwell residents in efforts to form a security association that would establish a nightly parole of 36 well-paid and well-armed men funded by the community. The conviction of John Williams was becoming increasingly important, but the problem the magistrates had was that even they were not entirely sure of his guilt. In a letter to the Home Office detailing the questioning so far, they admitted that, despite many circumstances arising against him, they were not yet certain that he will prove the man. During the hearing, the Shadwell police had also been awaiting a man named Thomas Cahill, who had been arrested in Marlborough, who was said to have matched precisely the description of one of the men seen running towards Ratcliffe Highway, who the officials hoped might turn out to be Williams' accomplice. When he arrived, however, his hearing quickly turned into a farce, as Cahill twisted and turned his story, seemingly not taking the whole thing seriously at all, so convinced was he that he could easily get rid of the charge. In the end, the magistrates, defeated by what was reported as Cahill's immense stupidity, cleared him of any ties to the murders. The next day, the examination was to be resumed, with the magistrates organising another full day of witnesses at the Shadwell Police Office. Williams was sent for, and just as the proceedings were due to start, the police officer entered the court alone and approached the magistrates. John Williams would be unable to attend, he told them, as that morning he had been found dead in his cell, hanging from an iron bar in the ceiling by his own handkerchief. For the magistrates, Williams' suicide was as good as an admission of guilt, and merely a way for him to escape the consequences of his murderous actions. With a different atmosphere in the room, they endeavoured to continue with the hearing all the same, and called the first witness, now confident that John Williams had been the guilty party. Mrs Vermilow returned to the stand and was once more questioned on the identity of the maul and, just as before, she failed to confidently identify the weapon as the one that had been in the tool chest. The next day, the press gave an interesting subtext to the situation by stating that they felt that she seemed unwilling to identify it. The magistrates apparently thought something similar also and more than once reminded her that she need not fear Williams anymore. When Mrs Vermelow asked why not, they told her that he had hanged himself earlier that morning, to which she replied, Good God, I hope not. The magistrates asked her why she should think so, and she replied, I should have been sorry if he was innocent that he should have suffered. All the same, upon hearing of Williams's death, she changed her story somewhat, choosing instead to pin them all to Williams, stating that she had suspected him as soon as she had heard the initials were on them all. It was, all told, a somewhat confusing testimony, but in the end, Mrs Vermelow employed a tactic that would continue throughout the day as the guilt was placed upon the dead John Williams and any other suspect or potential suspect, including the two other roommates of the pear tree, the carpenter who had worked at the Mars, and really anyone else that had been insinuated as a possible accomplice, were quickly cast aside. As the day went on, a narrative emerged of a sole killer, a murderous individual who had destroyed himself in his guilt and who was the villain who had murdered the Mars and the Williamsons and then escaped justice at the final moment. It was, at least, a narrative that suited the officials involved. Williams's roommates at the Pear Tree gave damning character references 
as did Mr. Lee, the landlord of the Black Horse Inn, who told the room that he had caught Williams with his hand in his till once before. In a letter to the Home Office that evening, the magistrates were clear in, in how their opinion had changed since Williams had killed himself. Now, far from being unsure if he would prove the man, they wrote instead that they were sure he was the guilty party and that they had every reason to hope that he alone was concerned. An inquest was held for Williams's suicide, where the prison surgeon told the jury that he had confirmed that there were no other marks of violence upon his body and that he had no doubt that he had died from self-imposed strangulation. Curiously, several workers in the prison who had interacted with Williams painted a somewhat different picture of the prisoner. In the days before his death, he had told the surgeon that he was perfectly easy about the hearing, so convinced was he of his innocence. A fellow prisoner confirmed that when he had spoken with Williams, he had always seemed perfectly rational and collected, and when he had spoken to the prison clerk on Christmas Day, he had told him that he was not guilty. The coroner, however, felt otherwise, as he addressed the jury. This miserable wretch, the object of the present inquiry, was committed here on suspicion of being one of the perpetrators of the late alarming and most inhuman murders, and that suspicion is greatly increased by the result which has taken place. For how much augmented is the suspicion of guilt against the man who, to escape justice, has recourse to self-destruction? All homicide is murder till the contrary shall be shown. The law ranks suicide in the worst class of murderers, and this is a case of most unqualified self-murder. I have applied my attention to the conduct of those entrusted with the custody of this wretched man as a subject interesting to the public mind, and I leave it with you. I think there is no culpability attaching itself to them. It only, therefore, remains that we consign the body of this self-murderer to that infamy and disgrace which the law has prescribed, and to leave the punishment of his crimes to him that has said, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay. Williams's suicide made it all the way to Parliament, and the Prime Minister himself voiced the feelings of the officials and the public by stating that he had disappointed the vengeance of the nation by violently withdrawing himself from the punishment that awaited him. If he had been found guilty of the murders, Williams would have undeniably been sentenced to a public execution. Robbed of this, the public demanded some kind of vengeance, and the officials had to make an example of the dead man in order to appease the masses. An alternative had to be arranged, and as such, a macabre parade was conducted on the night of Monday the 30th of December, when the body of John Williams was collected from Coldbarfield Prison, placed aboard a hackney carriage and delivered to a nearby watch house. The next morning, on New Year's Eve, at 9am, Williams was placed on top of a car that had been custom-fitted with an angled platform that would display the body alongside the bloody mall, and then paraded down Ratcliffe Highway in front of the hordes of spectators who had turned out to see the spectacle. Stopping outside Mars's shop, the cart was turned so that Williams's dead eyes could take in the scene of the brutal attack, where everyone stood silent for ten minutes, before once more setting off towards New Gravel Lane, where it was again stopped outside the King's Arms pub for another ten minutes. Over 10,000 people were said to have lined the streets that morning to witness the bizarre spectacle. From there, Williams was dragged to a small hole dug in the ground four feet deep and two feet wide, where his body was unceremoniously dumped into the pit, intentionally dug too small for the crumpled remains. Finishing the job, an escort jumped down from the cart and drove a stake through Williams's heart with the aid of the very maul used to murder the Mars. The hole was filled in and paving stones placed on top of the grave, consigning Williams to the ground forever. 
With Williams committed to the ground, the public outrage and the panic and fear that had spread throughout the Ratcliffe Highway area slowly but surely began to subside. The magistrates, however, were still hard at work attempting to uncover the truth about the murders. Confident that they had placed the blame on the right man, there was still a certain degree of doubt as to whether or not there had been an accomplice. With the press and public easing their pressure upon the officials, they were now free to search for any such man in a more relaxed environment. It wasn't long before new evidence arose and several arrests were made. In the first week of January, one John Harrison, an acquaintance of Williams who said he had loaned him a handkerchief several weeks earlier, said that he had asked Williams to return it to him, and when he had pulled it from his pocket, he had also taken out a six-inch French knife with an ivory handle. It was an interesting story, though the knife had not been seen since, even after the toilet at the pear tree had been turned upside down by the Shadwell police, specifically looking for it, a task that they had, until now, looked to avoid for obvious reasons. They did, however, find a pair of trousers and a pair of scissors attached to a sewing case. Once all of the filth was washed from the trousers, they revealed bloodstains in every direction. Mrs Vermelo was presented with the bloody trousers and asked if she thought they might have belonged to Williams, but once again she seemed to have erred, saying that they seemed to be too shabby for Williams, who normally dressed very well when he was on shore. Later in January, the pear tree was raided for a second time after a lodger at the inn uncovered a blue jacket that was identified as belonging to Williams, whose inside pocket had been badly stained with blood. This time, the police found a small mouse hole in the back of a packed closet, and inside, the French knife perfectly hidden away. These discoveries seemed to confirm to most that Williams was indeed the guilty party. As far as accomplices went, a testimony from the captain of the Roxburgh Castle, upon which Williams had sailed, connected him with a man named William Ablas who was said to have been a good friend of Williams and who had already been taken into custody and questioned several times before, though he had thus far denied any connection with the murderer. Now it turned out that the two had been on good terms and that both had had violent and turbulent histories at sea, with Ablas heading up a mutiny. Back in London, Ablas was held in chains and questioned repeatedly about the murderers, until eventually he was discharged after Parliament had questioned why he was still in custody without any sufficient evidence. In the weeks and months following the murders, the matter of the city's insufficient police force and the feeling of insecurity and vulnerability throughout the public continued to arise. Doubts still came up from time to time as to if the culprit had actually been caught or not, with the Prime Minister wading into the conversation himself during a debate on London's policing where he exclaimed, The particular outrage that had excited such feelings of horror and, and detestation in the metropolis and the perpetrators of which, the Honourable Gentleman said, had escaped detection was still wrapped up in mystery. It undoubtedly seems strange that a single individual could commit such accumulated violence. The probability was that he was incapable of doing so, but on this subject, no certain opinion could yet be formed. Some called for the nightly watch to be expanded, whilst others called for an expansion of the police, whilst those on the other side suggested the murders were so barbaric that no amount of policing would have ever stopped such a crime anyway. Eventually, however, the debate was crushed and policing was forced to proceed forward for another 18 years before any real reform would be made and the origins of the modern police force would be produced. The confidence in the guilty verdict against Williams was never truly realised. Though the public outcry had been appeased and much of the uneasy fears abated, there remained a whole host of questions unanswered. Who were the men seen running away from the crime scenes, even if Williams constituted one of them? And why had several of them seemingly not matched the description of anyone brought into custody? Was the killer working alone or as part of a criminal gang? 
why Williams was innocent had he killed himself on the eve of the final day of his hearing, and why had the investigation ended so abruptly? Had the officials simply bungled everything so badly and been so afraid of the public outrage that lay on the horizon that they simply wrapped it up in the most convenient way possible? A hundred years after the whole affair, a group of workmen laying a water pipe in the Ratcliffe Highway area uncovered the state remains of Williams and his bones were distributed amongst several interested parties, including a nearby pub who took its skull, which they proudly displayed by the bar for many years until it too was torn down, drawing to a close the mystery of the Ratcliffe Highway killings, with the truth, like William's skull, lost forever. So that was the story of the Ratcliffe Highway murders. And there's quite a bit to talk about there. And we'll do so after these short advert breaks. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever feel like your brain is getting in its own way? Like you know what you should do, what's good for you, but you just can't do it. Therapy helps you figure out what's holding you back. So you can work for yourself instead of against yourself. If that resonates with you in any way or anything like that, then perhaps you might find the broader benefits of therapy helpful. For example, learning positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, empowering you to be the best version of yourself. You know, therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma or, you know, who feel like they have uh, any major sort of uh, problems in their lives. It can really be for anybody and, and just talking to someone and talking through uh, like these blockages in your life like really can just help you out in a, in a big way. So if you ever thought about starting therapy or you're thinking now about perhaps starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, which is really convenient. And it's totally what it's designed for. It's completely flexible and it suits your schedule. I did it. I did it on a Monday morning, sat in my pyjamas. It was brilliant. Uh, you, all you've got to do is you fill out a brief questionnaire. You get matched with a licensed therapist, uh, which... If you don't like that therapist, you can switch them at any time for no additional charge. The therapist that was allotted to me was great, so I never had to do that. But the options there, if you ever do, you know, when I did it, I felt like it, it just took down some of those barriers, that some of those sort of mental barriers that stopped me from going into therapies. So, so, so yeah, so I, I felt it was a really beneficial experience when I did it. So why not make your brain your friend with BetterHelp? Visit BetterHelp.com slash Dark Histories today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Dark Histories. Today's episode is sponsored by a new podcast from Wondery. I Hear Fear is a new anthology series of suspenseful stories hosted by Carrie Mulligan. These stories are inspired by true events and real places. So the next sound you hear could be your own scream. In each episode of I Hear Fear, you'll be treated to a new psychological thriller a forest monster who lures teens into the woods and never lets them return, a line of beauty products that takes the search for youth to dark extremes, and an EDM party that turns deadly when the DJ takes over more than just the dance floor. These might sound like urban legends, but I Hear Fear proves that the scariest stories of all are the ones that are true. I Hear Fear will introduce immersive horror and lead you straight into the heart of darkness, Prepare to be taken on a journey into the unknown. Follow I Hear Fear on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of I Hear Fear ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Cheers. 
welcome back. So yes, that was the Ratcliffe Highway murders. It's quite a story. That ending where they drag his body through the streets, which we'll come back to in a minute, was was quite something to read about. But anyway, there's a lot to talk about here. Firstly, I should say that this uh, episode is indebted, obviously, to, to uh, a book called The Maul and the Pear Tree uh, by James and Critchley. Uh, it's co-authored and uh, it's quite old now, but it's still pretty much the like the book on the case, the definitive uh, work on, on this case. And uh, it's easy to see why when you start looking into it, when you step away from that book and you start looking into things, it, it, the, the evidence is just a complete mess. And and as the book sort of conveys as well, is is and, and hopefully, you know, this episode conveyed as well, that everything was just a mess because there was no central, or there was a sort of very loose central organisation. Everything could have been anywhere you know uh, you you had like magistrates that were confusing evidence because they were only seeing it secondhand from uh, another group of constables or, or or something like that do you know what i mean like essentially like everyone was dealing with like secondhand information and because of that everything became close to a farce on several occasions that there were hearings taking place where they were people were just like like officials were just getting like items of evidence mixed up uh, uh, and it was just a mess and and so to actually pull it apart and try and work out what, what what's going on is incredibly difficult but say that that book is a, a really good um uh, a really good work on the case so if you do fancy reading more into it because definitely there are details that um you know obviously a book goes into far more detail than this podcast so uh, yeah it's it's worth reading if if, if you find this uh, an interesting case anyway um, so what do we think? Um, well, I mean, this is difficult, right? I'm very torn. I, I think Williams was probably not guilty. I, I, I think he was innocent. I think he was probably telling the truth about the blood on his clothing. Um, I think it probably came from a fight. Uh, you know, brawls seemed more or less like a day-to-day event in the Ratcliffe Highway area. And someone who sort of lived amongst that as a seaman would have been he you know he would have got involved in the local culture you know um so i i don't i don't think really there's any reason to question the the legitimacy of that i think he, you know i think there would have been you know i think whatever item of clothing had been worn whilst these murders were taking place would have seen considerably more blood than what was on a shirt that could have been washed off um with a quick boil because basically his washerwoman said she gave the shirt a a, a boil and um she thinks that all the blood was probably gone I, I don't think that would have been possible if it would have been a shirt that you murdered these people in i think it would have been absolutely drenched in blood you know there was said to be blood spatter up the walls and the ceilings and and without getting too graphic the, the, the descriptions were that there was like brains everywhere so like this guy whoever killed them by with the with the mall um there just would have been gore everywhere so to say that, you know, the shirt was in such um, condition that the washerwoman, Mrs. Rice, she said, oh, I was going to keep it to one side and, and just stitch it back up. So that makes you think, OK, that it really wasn't that bad condition and the blood washed out fine. I don't think that's the shirt of a, that, that the person did these murders in. So there's that evidence first. There are some pieces of evidence that are slightly weird, like why did he hide the knife in the pear tree? Because 
but was that knife his? It, it, it instantly brings that question. Um, perhaps it was anyone else at the pear tree. The knife appears to have been his. And, and then you do have to sort of say, why did you hide it down the back of the closet? But the bloody clothes, okay, someone identified the jacket, the blue jacket with the blood inside as his. Okay, but again, I think if that had been a jacket that he'd have worn on the night of the murder, I think that would have been absolutely drowned in blood. I don't think it would have been just a mark on the inside pocket where his hand, like a bloody hand, went. Because that's what they were suggesting, was that the blood was on the inside pocket where someone with bloody hands would have reached for something in their pocket and left it blood, left it bloodstained. Again, could that not have come from a fight? Um, you know, I, I don't think it would have come from that level of gore. Like, I, I just don't think that's the case. But then we're brought onto the pear tree, which is incredibly interesting. And it could have been anyone who was in the pear tree. It could have been any of the other roommates for a start. But it could also have been anyone who visited the pear tree. Um, you know, the, the chest was unlocked. It seemed to have gone missing quite some time before the murders. So therefore, it, it really could have been anyone. And and Mrs. Vermelo is a really interesting uh, case it was said in the newspapers that she appeared that she knew more than she was letting on. Um, and it did seem that the questioning seemed to pick up on that vibe as well, because they pressured her quite heavily both. And, and they, you know, they, they suggested, oh, you know, there's nothing to be afraid of. I think they knew that she was hedging her bets somewhere. So who was it that was threatening her? Her husband was in prison um, for debts. And obviously he, he would have been after the reward money. And it turns out that actually... They both got paid £30 each for um, the information that they gave, which would have paid off his debts and, and presumably helped him get out of prison. Uh, so, you know, there, there's quite a big incentive there to have Williams uh, successfully uh, found guilty. So he, it's, so you can't say that that guy, you know, her husband was acting on, on entirely on good faith there. So, so was it him, you know, was she afraid of messing up her husband's plan? Had he threatened her or had he just, she, maybe she wanted him out of prison as well and, uh, you know, was afraid of messing it up or was afraid of lying, you know, all, all sorts of things. Something was scaring her. So um, that's quite interesting. But what's important, I think, out of her testimony is she seems to think that Williams was a nice guy. She seemed to give him quite good character references and she seemed to think that he was an honest lodger um, who, who they were sort of always happy to take in because he stayed with them every time he was on shore and seemingly they were happy to receive him. So that is interesting. I'd say You can't really say, oh, okay, just because people thought he was nice, he wasn't the murderer because obviously that doesn't make sense. There's been plenty of people who appeared nice on the outside but were murders in, the his, in, you know, in history. But, but, ne but nevertheless, it, it, it says something that she didn't think that he was capable of the murders. So then, you know, if it wasn't him, why did he kill himself? That, you know, raises that question. Um, but I think that's fairly simple to, well, I mean, nothing's simple to answer, but, but it's easy to theorise with, like, perhaps he, perhaps he just knew that the circumstantial evidence was piling on him and that there was pressure on the, you know, the, the um, officials to get a conviction and that he was basically done. You know, or, or was he intimidated by the fact that if he'd been let out of prison, he was probably going to get lynched by the public anyway, because they were by this point, um, you know, nearly rioting on the streets and things. So, um, you know, was he, was he afraid of that? Uh, there's quite a few options. You know, did he just want to be in control of his own destiny? Uh, who knows? Or 
was he guilty in some way and overcome by remorse? You know, that's the, that's the other sort of question. You know, maybe he killed himself because he was guilty. If he was guilty, that, say there are some things that I think do play against him, like the knife hidden behind the um, in the mouse hole. If that wasn't planted there, uh, and and maybe he was just hiding it there because it was valuable. I don't know. Uh, you know, but the, everything that piles against him, the evidence, I think, is so circumstantial that you can just you can refute it every time. So to say whether he's actually in, like guilty or innocent, I think is almost impossible. I think none of the um, evidence really is strong enough to convict him on. And I think there's so much evidence that that seems to be messy and points away from him even. You know, for every evidence that you can say, oh, that's quite strong, like the bloody jacket, for example, you could say, oh, that's quite strong evidence against him. But what about the fact that, you know, the people seen running away at the time were... Not, apparently not matching the description uh you know okay he had a lame leg but a lot of people had muscular and uh, bone issues were quite common especially amongst the poorer classes and people uh in manual labor so this is not that particularly unusual in fact there were about four or five people that the police picked up who had lame leg, leg who had lame legs that lived in that area so that just goes to show how how common it, it actually was so really you think so what? Okay, what part of the description is matching him? The fact that he was slightly lame—that that's about it, um, you know—and that and that doesn't really seem to be enough. So yeah, I, I think he was probably innocent. Um, how many people did the crime? I think it was probably at least two. I think it probably was two. I think um, there's quite a bit of evidence that, that seems to suggest it was two. There was um, in the first murders, there was bloody footprints that seemed to belong to two sets of footprints. There was. At one point, uh, someone saw two people running away up the road. Um, there were two weapons. You had, you had the maul and the knife. Um, and there was a suggestion that someone wouldn't have been able to use both weapons to at the same time, really. Um, I, I don't know if that's true. I mean, you could smash someone with the maul, pop it down on the floor and then slash their throat and then pop that knife back in your pocket and move on to the next one, you know, I, I guess. But it seems to be more efficient. You know, they were quickly done murders it seems more efficient that it was perhaps two people with two weapons um but yeah i don't know i think that's probably the case i think it was two people the motives really tricky it didn't that i think I, I would never understand um because they didn't seem to really profit out of it unless they were just so poor and they just wanted to be so quick to make sure they got away with it that stealing like a watch from one was enough you know maybe could, they could sell that watch for a fiver and that that was enough for them maybe that's the sadness of it maybe that's like the real tragedy of it is that they were literally murdered for like almost nothing you know uh which means that people would have done it would you would think were really destitute other than that or they were just some hyper violent crime gang you can't really see the point in that and there is no real links between the two otherwise so it's hard to, you know, the motive is particularly difficult. But um, yeah, interesting story. As a bit of a side note, what I found really interesting about it was um, how quickly, how you could really see um, all sorts of progress that had been made in the 19th century in this, due to the fact that it being like the early 19th century, um, you know, by the end of the century, you know, the, 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 the amount of social change that, happened is, is is crazy and um you can see that really uh quite quite uh plainly 
in the um well, what they did with his body um, by dragging it through the streets on a... Well, not dragging it, but, you know, they, they slapped his body on a cart to complete with the bloody mall, uh, you know, then rode it through the streets in front of everyone, then staked it through the heart in the in a shallow grave. I mean, this is barbaric stuff. Um, and within, like, 20 years, uh, public executions were reformed almost entirely uh, so that you could no longer do any of this stuff. And... Uh, by the late 1860s, uh, executions had to take place behind closed doors even. Uh, and then, you know, 100 years later, obviously, they were abolished completely. But in the 19th century, it has gone from, like, this barbaric kind of uh, social justice to quite a... I mean, you know, the debate's open on capital punishment, but, you know, it's been turned into quite an efficient professional thing instead of a, a spectacle... And then obviously outside that, you, you get to see, you know, the police reform that took place in the next 20 or 30 years. It's just, I just found that uh, reading this story and, and reading into the details and stuff, just the, the sheer amount of change from 1811 to even like the 1840s. And then again, like the 1880s or 1890s, the sheer difference is the sheer amount of change is, is really unreal. And it, it shows the, the, the speed and the pace of the progress that was made in in the 19th century, say both socially and really on just about every level, in fact. Um, you know, really interesting. Even even the newspapers, they just almost entirely changed, uh, you know, in their presentation and in journalism just completely remade uh, throughout the century. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting from that perspective just to see that, say, an early 19th century case the, the, the differences between that and like a mid and a late 19th century case is, is quite something. Anyway, that was just really a bit of an aside that I just thought was interesting. But um, yeah, so anyway, thank you very much for listening. I hope you found this episode interesting too. Uh, if you would like to contact me about it or, or for any other purpose, you can do so. Uh, the email is contact at darkhistories.com. You can also get in touch with me via social media. Uh, DM me there, um, any of the social medias um, that you can find me on. All of those links are in the show notes, of course. Um, and also there's a link there to the website, which is darkhistories.com. And that's kind of the hub where you probably want to go if you want to find anything out about the show. You can find links to, um, you know, sign up to the communities or support the show. There's links to the Patreon over there if you'd like to support me on Patreon. You know, of that was obviously always incredibly welcome Uh or any other way that you would like to support, like merch or anything like that, or just, just leaving a review. Links, basically everything from darkissues.com. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. Like I say, I hope it was an interesting episode and, and you enjoyed it. So until next time, I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Take care. Sleep tight. <laughs>